I'll ask the rest of you to open with me this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, as we continue to study the Sermon on the Mount and the, in particular the Beatitudes, where we've been the last several weeks looking at uh, Jesus' instruction or rather description of what it means to truly follow God. He, the Beatitudes are a, a description of the heart of a true believer. It, is, uh, it tells us of, of those things which ought to be present in our life um, as God's favor rests on us, that we should be carrying these things out in order to that the reality of faith might be demonstrated in our lives. Of course, the point is not that these things be carried out perfectly. The point is not that they are, are, are done um, to, to perfection, but the fact that they should be present within us. The characteristics of the Beatitudes are the characteristics of genuine faith. They are the characteristics of the followers of Jesus Christ, those who would pursue God and His righteousness. And it's so important, I think, for us at this time in, in the world in which we live, in the day in which we live, to think about what it means to be a believer. What does it mean to follow Christ? What does it mean to pursue God? What does it mean to, to be what God has called us to be as His children? We need to be reminded of that because we live in a world which constantly seeks to move us from our determination to follow Christ, and it seeks to distract us and to deter us from doing the things that God has called us to do. We are distracted by activities and the offerings of this world. We are um, deterred from trying to, to fulfill what God has called us to do and to be obedient to the Word of God as we come under persecution, as we come under opposition, and the world is, in fact, in opposition to us as Christians. And while that is an uncomfortable reality, it is the reality that God has revealed to us in Scripture. Nobody likes to be in conflict. Nobody likes to be at opposition. We like to be, we like to be comfortable. We like to be at peace. We like to be um, in, involved in the, in the things that are going on around us. And yet, very clearly throughout Scripture, there, we as believers, as followers of the one true God, as followers of Jesus Christ, are called to be separate from the world. There is to be a distinction between us as believers and the world around us. And when we study the Beatitudes, we see that difference coming out. We see that sometimes what the world tells us about who God is and how He works is not really who God is and how He works. And the Beatitudes bring some clarity to that reality. And so I would ask you to stand with me this morning in reverence to the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read, once again, the entirety of the Beatitudes. We've covered the first um, six. We're going to be looking at the last three this morning. But for the sake of context, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5, let us read together. When Jesus saw the crowds, He went up on the mountain, and after He sat down, His disciples came to Him. He opened His mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, 
for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Heavenly Father, as we are exposed to your word this morning, we recognize, first of all, Lord, it is the very word of God, spoken to us, preserved for us. And now we pray, Lord, that you would have your way in our hearts in accordance with your word and your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. As I've said, we've covered the this first six of these, but I want to just once again remind you kind of how we've walked through this and how we've grouped these together. The first three uh, Beatitudes are those things which are matters of, of self-evaluation that help us to recognize our relationship with the Lord, whether indeed we have one or not. Blessed are the, are the poor in spirit, those who recognize they have nothing to offer God but are completely dependent upon His grace. That is what it means to be poor in spirit. We are spiritually bankrupt. We are in need of a Savior. We are in need of God's working in us to redeem us and to restore us to our relationship with Him. Blessed are those who mourn. That is, those who mourn over sin in their life and over the presence of sin in the world. We are affected by the presence of sin in the world because when you were saved, God gave you His Holy Spirit and sin grieves the Holy Spirit. And so sin in our life ought to grieve us as well as the sin that we see in the world around us. It ought to bring grief into our heart as we see the impact of it around us, and yet God has promised to comfort us in that reality. And then, blessed are the gentle, or the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That is a, that, that characteristic that speaks of, of power under control. That is that self-control that is, a, that is a fruit of the Spirit. It is that reality that when things are happening around us that we don't just respond in our flesh, but we think about wanting to respond in such a way that we can honor the Lord Jesus Christ. And so those, are, those first three, are, they're kind of self-evaluative. Who are we in God's presence? Well, we are, we are weak, we are mournful, and we are seeking to be like Jesus. That is who we are in the presence of God. That is our evaluation. The next three speak of our motivation in serving God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What greater word for motivation could there be than that? You should, as a child of God, you should desire above all else the righteousness of God. You ought to desire to do the things which are pleasing in His sight, and you ought to desire Him, most of all, that you would know Him better, that you would love Him better, and that you would serve Him better. That's what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And God has said, for those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be satisfied, because God Himself comes to them and is the satisfaction, because He is the righteous one. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. That is those who don't respond in vengeance when people act towards them, but they respond mercifully just as God has been merciful to us. He has not taken vengeance on us, but He has sent His Son to die in our place in order that we might be free from the condemnation that comes from sin. And so we are 
we are merciful because God has shown us mercy and has promised to continue to be merciful to us and that we're not, we're not vengeful when those that wrong us, but we recognize the needs of those around us and seek to lift them up and to consider them before ourselves. That is what it means to be merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. And no, I don't think anything speaks more clearly to motivation than this reality here because the heart is the place of devotion. The heart is the place of thought. The heart is the place of desire. And we are to be pure in our motives. We are to be reflective of who Christ is and that He is our great example and that He has saved us in order that we might be conformed to His image. Now, obviously, we are not perfect in our purity, but we are striving for purity. We are longing for purity in order that Christ might be pleased with us and that we might honor our Father who has redeemed us. And so these three speak to our motivations. And then as we come to the final three Beatitudes, we see something of, of a change in the, in the structure and the way things um, are brought to our attention. But these three things have this one thing in common, and that is they all refer to our relationship with the world. That is, it's not about so much about our inward motivation as it is how we respond to the world around us. Because as I said at the very beginning, we are called to be different. The Christians should be different from the world around them. As believers who have been changed by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have been called to be a people set apart for the glory of God. Now before we get into the text and, and looking at these three specifically, I just want to give a few clarifying statements about what I mean when I'm talking about being set apart being separate from the world because i think that in the history of the church that a lot of christians have understood this reality but sometimes the application of that separation has not always been carried out in such a way as to glorify god because people oftentimes in recognizing the need to be separate from the world around us the bible tells us separate yourselves come out and be separate and so what happens sometimes is in that pursuit of separateness what we end up doing as believers is we end up building barriers between ourselves and the lost world around us we end up building barriers that keeps us from being effective witnesses to the lost people around us that was never god's intention when he tells you to come out and be separate he's telling you you need to look different you need to act different but he's not telling you that you need to be completely segregated from the rest of the world around you. In fact, the Apostle Paul, as he's speaking to the church in Corinth, he, he begins to tell them and speaking to them of their need to hold each other accountable. He says, but be careful that you don't separate yourselves too much from the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. He, 9 and 10, he says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. Paul's saying, listen, I understand that you need to, that you need to hold each other accountable within the church, that there's sometimes you need, to, you need to discipline people within the church and there needs to be some separation. He says, but I'm not talking about the people, the people that are outside the church. You can't completely separate yourselves from them because you're called to be witnesses among them. If you completely avoid unbelievers, how are you ever going to reach them with the gospel? If you completely stay away. Now, I'm not saying, but now, now here's, 
here's the other side of that. Because some, in an attempt to be, to be relevant and, and to be inclusive and to be um, outreaching, have so watered down what it means to be a Christian, have so sought to be um, unoffensive, have so sought to be um, like the world around them, that they've lost the impact of their witness because they look so much like the world, they're not any different than the world around them, and there's, there's nothing to them to commend them to Christ. And so you have these two extremes. One, completely separate, in which you have no witness because you have no interaction. You can't witness to people you're not around. And then the other aspect is you're so much like the world that you don't have anything to offer them that's any different than what they already have. And so there is the idea in which we are separate from the world and is that we look different from the world, but we must continue to be in the world and not of the world in order that we might represent Christ to a lost and dying world. And so as we come to the, these last three Beatitudes, as we look at what it means to be a Christian in the world, and, and to be in the world but not of the world, we're looking at those things as, that define our relationship to the world around us. And the first thing that, that Jesus speaks of here is in our relationship to the world around us is our role as His representatives. Our role as His representatives. Look with me at verse number 9. He says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Well, what does it mean to be a peacemaker? Well, it's just like what it sounds like. It's, it's to pursue peace among people, right? To pursue peace. But even greater than that is to pursue peace with God. Now, God Himself is the greatest peacemaker that there ever has been or ever will be. He is the ultimate peacemaker. Ever since the Garden of Eden, mankind has been at enmity with God. And has been trying and failing to restore that relationship which was broken in sin. And I stress the fact that man has been failing because in our own strength and in our own attempts, we can never restore what was broken. We are dependent on the work of God to do that. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are depraved in our hearts. We are deficient in our ability to please God. Yet, God in His infinite love and in His infinite wisdom provided a means of overcoming our depravity, of overcoming our deficiencies and making a way to restore our relationship to Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. And he, was, he is the only means of that happening. We see sin in the world. We see its effects are evident in the brokenness that's all around us. And yet God has given us hope. He has given us hope in the promises of a deliverer who will satisfy the just payment that sin requires. He's given us hope throughout Scripture in the hope that He first gave in the garden, the hope of the seed of the woman from which this Redeemer would arise. Hope that comes from that seed which is not tainted under sin because the seed of man was tainted, but the seed of woman would produce and bring about this Redeemer. There is hope in the one who would come in the order of Melchizedek, who would be a priest of the Most High God, who would be both a king of peace and a king of righteousness. 
He would be that one who would accomplish both peace and righteousness in the name of God. We are given hope in the suffering servant spoken of in Isaiah who offers himself to make atonement for the sins of mankind and gives life to all who believe in him. And these are just some of the Old Testament images that we're given that point us to the reality that God has made a way for us to be at peace with him. And they are all, every single one, fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ who came to be the satisfactory payment for our sin. 1 John 2, 2, John writes of speaking of Jesus, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. That word propitiation, it means a satisfying payment. That's what it means. It shows up about three or four times in your Bible. It means a satisfying payment. We owe a debt to God that we are not able to satisfy. But Christ, in His infinite righteousness, in His infinite character, and, in, and by His blood, offers a payment that satisfies the just requirement of God's law. And so, and so that satisfaction is made through Christ. A satisfaction that requires a blood sacrifice. You go all the way back to the garden again. Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. They, they sin against God, right? God tells them, in the day that you disobey me, you will surely die, right? They were separated from God spiritually, immediately. They experienced spiritual death. They began to die physically. They didn't die physically right at that moment. They lived for hundreds of more years, but they began the process of physical death. And when death would come, had it not been for a sacrifice that was made, they would have also died eternally. But what did God do? Do you remember what God did? Adam and Eve were hiding in the garden. They tried to cover their shame. They tried to cover their sin. Right? Sewed fig leaves together. What did God do? God covered them with animal skins. God made a blood sacrifice and covered their sin through an atoning sacrifice. And again, that sacrifice was the basis for which the sacrificial system would come about, all of which pointed to the one for once for all sacrifice that Jesus Christ would make in order that we might have peace with God. And having found peace with God, we find ourselves being called to the task of being peacemakers ourselves. Because we have been given peace, we are calling others to be at peace with him as well. We are his representatives for that purpose. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says this, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We are his representatives in the world in order that people might have peace with God. One of the great differences between a, a, a truly born-again Christian and a person that is just in the world is that a person in the world is at enmity with God. They are at opposition with God, and we are at peace with God. That's enough of a distinction to say that we're different from the world. We're at peace with God. They are not. 
And so, because we're at peace, we're meant to bring peace. We're, we're meant to be peacemakers, not just seeking to share the gospel with people so that they can come to know Christ, but to allow the gospel to influence our relationships with other people and to allow the gospel to influence our interactions with others who are in conflict. You see, the gospel is, is a tool that, the God, that God has given us not only to bring peace between us and Him, but to influence our lives in the way that we interact with the world around us. The gospel is a gospel of peace. It is, it is, its form and its uh, substance is such that we are meant to allow it to permeate our reasoning, to saturate our wisdom, so that we might seek peace in the midst of conflict and help establish and uphold peaceful relationships. We need, we are called to be peacemakers. Of course, the reality is, is the more you speak the truth of God's word into a situation, the more you stand on the principles of Scripture, the more you say, this is the Word of God, and this is what it says to this circumstance, and this is what it says to this situation, the more opposition is going to come your way. That's just the reality of living in a fallen world. The more you look like Christ, and the more you seek to bring His Word to bear on the circumstances of your life and the lives of others, the more opposition you are going to come up against. I mean, Jesus himself says in Matthew 10, 34, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. It's kind of contradictory to what we're just talking about. I thought he, was, I thought he just came to bring peace, peace between us and God, right? Well, in context, what Jesus is saying there, he's saying the reality is, is that wherever the gospel goes forth, wherever people are truly dedicated to the Lord and to his word, there will be division. There will be opposition. There will be those who oppose because as Paul told the Corinthian church, the natural man does not receive the things of the Lord, nor can he discern them because they are spiritually discerned. People are naturally opposed to the things of God because they live under the curse of sin. And when we seek to bring God's word to bear on our lives and on the lives of others, as we seek to speak truth, into people's lives, there is an ever-widening chasm of differences that become apparent because of conflicting worldviews. And these conflicts must come. Although conflict is necessary and although conflict must come, we are still to pursue peace. And that pursuit of peace in our relationship with God and the people in others' relationships with God, but also relationships with each other, that pursuit marks us as sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And what a privilege it is to be considered a child of God. This is the great blessing that we that are given to those who are peacemakers. For all who are children are called to be peacemakers also. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 emphasizes the significance of this blessing. He says there, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know Him. You see, even there, there's a distinction drawn between the Christian and the world. 
And from this blessing, from this blessing of being God's children, it is also apparent how related this beatitude is to the one following it. Because although we have a role as his representatives and we're called to be peacemakers, we also have a position as being those who are persecuted. I want you to see our position as the persecuted in verse number 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Persecution for the Christian is not something that's meant just to be a possibility. It is meant to be the reality of our life as followers of Christ. All throughout Scripture, we are promised persecution. It was the reality experienced by the apostles. It was the reality experienced by the early church fathers. Jesus said in John 15, 20, Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Did you hear that? If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. We should expect persecution as we seek to follow Christ. We should expect persecution as we seek to honor His Word. We should expect that people are not going to be on board with where we are. We should expect there's going to be opposition. We should expect people are not going to like what we have to say. If we follow Christ, there will be persecution. Paul wrote to his young pastor friend Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And then to the church in Philippi, Paul wrote, Philippians 1.29, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. You see, all throughout Scripture, genuine belief and persecution are grouped together. You're not meant to have one without the other. Now, we've been very fortunate in the history of, of, of our nation as far as persecution for Christianity goes. We have not had the degree of antagonism to the faith, which we have seen in the increasing in recent years, but it is increasing, and it should not be unexpected. It is the reality for which we are meant to, to experience persecution. It is not something that necessarily needs to be avoided, but something that rather we should embrace because of the significance of what it means. You know, it has always been the greatest time for the church and for its growth in health as during times of great persecution. You see that early on? When, when the Apostle Paul's going around and you read through the book of Acts and you look at what, what he was dealing with and persecution was increasing and we know what happened in the years following him after he was beheaded uh, for his faith and we see the church growing up and we see the church spreading and, just, and the more that persecution arose, the more the church spread. The early church father, Tertullian, is famous, has famously said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. We see it throughout church history, but we even see it today in parts of the world where persecution is greatest. We also see the greatest influence of the gospel and the strength of the church 
in, in influencing places like China and Somalia and, and those areas of the world where persecution is, is just increasingly intense, where you would think where persecution is the greatest, that people would be fleeing from Christianity. You would think that they would renounce that which brings suffering into their life, but that is not the case. And it doesn't make sense from a human perspective, but yet as God draws and saves and He grants life in the midst of death, people are drawn to Him. And they have a desire to lay down their life for Him even as He laid down their life for them. And there, and there, is, a, there is a mysterious drawing that takes place when God's people persevere under persecution. Because the evidence of the gospel, the power of Christ is made evident through perseverance and persecution. And that is actually the third beatitude that we're going to look at. This one drawing right into that in, in verse, beginning in verse number 11 as we see our encouragement to endure. And he says, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, I think it's important that we notice, first of all, I want to back up to verse 10 for just a moment because there's a, a shift here in, in, what's, in how Jesus has been speaking to the people. We, we had said back when we looked at verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That was something that was present tense. Then the following Beatitudes are all future tense. These things, um, you're blessed when you do these things for they will happen, they shall come to pass. And then when we get to verse 10, when he talks about uh, being the persecuted, he says once again, he shifts back to the present tense, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is a present reality for those who have been persecuted. And then he, but in then verse 11, he changes the formula altogether. All along it's been the declaration, the conditions, and then the description, right? The declaration of blessing, the conditions of blessing, and the description of blessing. And now when you get to verse 11, besides the fact that he seems to be repeating himself, the, the total... The whole thing changes. First, we, we have the same declaration, but then the, there is an, the conditions are explained, and then there's a coinciding command before you ever get to the uh, description of the blessing that also carries with it further encouragement. And so this is, so Jesus, you can tell he's, he's kind of wrapping up all that he's been teaching us about, about what it means to be a child of the kingdom, of what it means to follow after Him, to pursue righteousness, to pursue God. And He's in the midst of this discussion on persecution and our relationship to the world as, as peacemakers and as opposition comes. And He wants to make it very, very personal. I mean, look, He says, he says you four times here. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. That's very personal. He wants us to, to, to draw attention that this is meant to be a reality that we recognize. But he also, don't miss this, because it's, it is against us. It is, it is a personal thing. But he also says, because of me. And there's great hope in that phrase. Because of me. And we know, we have the benefit of knowing what his audience at this time didn't know. We know what he went to endure. We know the persecution he faced. 
we know that he overcame and our hope is in him who overcame sin and death in the grave and so when we think about that when we think about that reality we can say with the disciples um, when they were when they were flogged for preaching jesus and they went out from the from the sanhedrin and they went out rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the sake of jesus name they rejoiced for that reality and for that truth and we see that same command coming to us in these verses he says blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you because of me rejoice and be glad that just doesn't seem to go with persecution when persecution comes, you don't think of rejoicing and being glad. When persecution comes, you think of, of, of fleeing or hiding or you know, responding maybe in a way that doesn't please God. And yet, throughout this, this last, these last two verses, as Jesus is getting our attention and He's making this very personal, making this reality of persecution very personal to us, he gives us three truths that are meant to encourage us to endure in the midst of persecution. Now look at this. You know, first of all, he says, and I, and I mentioned this, he said, it is for his sake. He says, he says, because of me. That is, when we're persecuted for standing firm on God's word, when we're persecuted for sharing the gospel when we're persecuted for bringing god's word to bear on circumstances and situations seeking to make peace with people seeking for people to be at peace with god then he says listen opposition is going to come and it's coming because of me and you're going to be identified with me when that happens i think that that's why when we see the disciples rejoicing that they were worthy to suffer shame for the name of christ why were they rejoicing because they were identified fully with Jesus. They knew this means we're His. This means that we're doing what He called us to do. This means that people are looking at us and they're recognizing that we have been with Him. That we're following Him. Because they rejected Him, they're rejecting us. And they, and they were fine with that. Because it glorified Jesus for them to be persecuted. As faith endures through difficulty, the strength of Christ and the power of the gospel is on full display for the world to see. People expect us to turn away when we're persecuted. They expect us to renounce the cause of our suffering. That's what the world would do. But we're given a supernatural endurance through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit so that when we are persecuted, we can endure. 1 Peter 4.14 reminds us, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. We endure not for our sake, but for the sake of glorifying Jesus' name. We're also encouraged, second truth, we're also encouraged to endure because of the promise of future blessing. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. So here we have those two commands, rejoice and be glad. Again, it just doesn't sound like it should go there with persecution, but hey, it's, this is a consistent theme throughout Scripture that somehow in the midst of suffering, we are to rejoice. James begins his epistle in the, in the, very, in the second verse of James as he starts off. He says, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And you're just like, what are you talking about? How can trials bring joy? How can I rejoice when I'm being persecuted? 
How can I be glad? Well, listen, we are not of the world, but we have the indwelling Spirit of Christ so that when we face these things, we are able to overcome in the strength that He provides. In James, he was encouraging endurance because of the work of patience that it produced. You go back and read James chapter 1. He says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that, uh, that your trials will produce patience and let patience have its perfect work. And so, so he recognizes that trials bring, are working in us to produce in us character. The disciples who suffered at the hands of Pharisees rejoiced to be counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Christ because it was an affirmation, affirmation of their identity with Christ. Here, Jesus tells us, rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. And this is a reminder for us, and, and I love this, because I think when you are in the midst of, really, of any difficulty, of any difficulty that you're facing, when we take our eyes off our circumstances, and we put them back on Christ, and we look at what he's promised us and we look at, at what he has says lies in our future it encourages us to continue on we're reminded by by having an eternal perspective by looking for that heavenly reward we're reminded that this earth is not our home we are but strangers and aliens and that our real home is with the lord who has redeemed us for himself this is foreign to, the, to a worldly mindset, but it is the truth of God's word to his children. And then the third and final truth given to encourage in our endurance is the example of the prophets. He says, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You go back and you read through Israel's history and you look at how God time and time again sent men to proclaim God's truth, to encourage, to instruct, to warn, to guide. And what did they do time and time again? They rejected the word of the prophets, they ridiculed the prophets, and they oftentimes executed the prophets. It's, it's just, it's their history. Because people don't always want to hear what God has to say. Why? Because it infringes on their rights, or their perceived rights. God's not interested in your pride. He's only interested in your submission. And of course, I mean, beyond just the prophets, we look to Christ himself, who is our great example. He was rejected by the world. He was arrested and convicted on false charges. And he was executed by hateful people that felt threatened by his teaching. And yet, Almighty God was able to take that horrible injustice and to turn it around and to use it to accomplish redemption for all who would call upon Jesus in faith. So we endure by faith, recognizing that opposition and persecution are the natural reaction of people to the truth of the gospel. That's how people are going to respond apart from God working in them. But you see, we persevere not because we're pursuing persecution, but because we're pursuing those whom God has chosen to be his children. And he, is, he has told us 
that the means by which people are saved is the proclamation of the gospel. So we endure, so we preach, so we share, so we live in such a way as to honor him, knowing that as his spirit works through our proclamation, as the spirit works through our testimony, as the spirit works through the gospel that we're bringing, that people will be saved, that people will come to be at peace with God and to be at peace with one another. This is our role in the world, to be peacemakers. Persecution will come, but we can endure. Conflicts arise among us because of sin, pride, selfishness, and the like, but those conflicts pale in comparison to the conflict that exists between men and God. And that's the conflict that needs to be overcome first and foremost. And that's why we have the gospel. Our weaknesses will always lead us away from God. Just as Adam and Eve fled from the presence of God when they broke his one command. When we are confronted with the holiness of God apart from God's drawing out and searching and power working in us, we will only flee from him. But when he calls, when we hear that sweet voice of Jesus calling us, revealing in us our weakness and offering us forgiveness, we can respond to him. We can come to him in faith knowing that his promises are sure, that his redemption is real, that forgiveness awaits, and that we are able in that moment to begin to recover that purpose for which we were created. We can begin at that moment to begin to pursue the truth and the reality for which God has made us and which God has saved us. The gospel's never been popular in the world. It's been tolerated in times. But we see in the day in which we live that there's an increasing antagonism in our, in our country, but it's just downright brutal in some areas of the world. And we need to recognize, first of all, that we... We're called to be separate. We're called to be different. We're called to stand on the truth of God's word no matter what may come. He's given us the strength to endure and to overcome. He's given us the hope we need. And he's given us the promise of the gospel to lead others to salvation. We should expect opposition and persecution, but we should stand firm knowing that God is working in us for his glory and for our good. We need to be real about what God's word has to say, and we need to recognize where we fall short. My hope and desire for us today as we look at this is, first of all, to recognize where we've fallen short in being peacemakers, where we've fallen short in enduring persecution. And that we would recognize that and that we would repent. That we would turn away from what we've been doing wrong and turn to Christ. And that we would begin to follow his final command here to rejoice and be glad. 
whatever our circumstances in life, whatever we may be facing, whatever hardships may come our way, whether it's opposition, persecution, whether it's something else that we're dealing with, God is working for His glory through His children. And we are called to stand firm on His word and in His promises. Because in Him, Christ is exalted. The church is empowered. And God is glorified. Let's pray. Father, almighty and holy and precious God, I thank you for the words recorded for us, the words of your Son, that remind us of our responsibility to be your representatives in the world. And more than that, Father, they remind us of the certainty of opposition that will come against us but we're also reminded of the joy that awaits us for faithfulness. So Lord, help us to take our role seriously. Help us to understand that we, having been saved from our sin, have been called to be proclaimers of truth so that others might come to faith in Jesus. And Lord, I pray for enduring strength that we might overcome that opposition and that difficulty which comes against us from time to time. That we might be bold in our witness. That we might renew our devotion to you and we might seek your power day in and day out to honor you with our actions and our attitudes. And Lord, I pray that even in this moment that you would work in our hearts. Father, if there's someone listening this morning that hasn't known the reality of these Beatitudes in their life, that hasn't experienced these characteristics, Lord, that they would be moved to pursue you so that they might know what it means to be your child. And for those of us that have, Lord, we recognize our failures to live up to these expectations. We recognize, Lord, that we can get distracted and we can be deterred. But Lord, we pray that by the power of your Spirit that you would renew within us a passion and a desire to serve and exalt your great and holy name. And I pray, Father, that you would lead us to the throne of grace this morning. That you would have your way in our hearts. And that you would continually mold us into the likeness of Christ. That he might be manifest in us and that people may come to know him through our testimony. I ask all of this in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.